Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. This election is about leadership. Election fever is upon us as Americans head to the polls. What impact will revised voting rights laws have on states and cities from Atlanta and beyond? We start things off in Sudan where the military has put the leader of that country under house arrest. Then the uprising in Sudan, a government upheaval and a coup in place. What's next for its people? We break down the disarray in the diaspora. The addiction is real. And social media saturation. Now, at the risk of FOMO, how has social media changed our lives? And why taking that break may be a necessary matter for a sound mind. Plus. What's up, everybody? I am Kennedy Rumacella here on the teal carpet at the season five, final season premiere of Insecure, talking to all your favorite cast and crew about what it means to be unapologetically black on screen, what it means to be authentic while shooting in LA. I mean, it's home, it's my neighborhood. That was the goal of the show to begin with, to, to show this particular part of LA that I love so much. Our special correspondent, Kennedy Rue McCullough, goes one-on-one -on -one with the stars of Insecure. We got our braces off? Let me see them teeth. Let me see them teeth. Ah. Let me see them teeth. Ah. Show me how you eat. Ah. <laughs> Are we stupid? All that and more tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Welcome to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. Election day is on everybody's mind, and with numerous local and state legislative special elections on the horizon, many eyes are on the mayoral race in the ATL. Now, this will be the first major election after Georgia's controversial voting laws passed back in March. Now, some argue that these laws are the new Jim Crow set to disenfranchise the black community. And then there are others, mainly conservatives, that say that these new laws actually expand access to voting. Tonight, we turn to the Atlanta mayoral race as we see the two sides of this potentially come to a conclusion for an answer if or when a black mayor wins this election. Because typically, issues of voter suppression result in either a black or a white candidate. So in a city like Atlanta, where all of its top candidates are black, we have to ask, can voter suppression impact which black candidate is elected? It's tonight's Prime Story. This election is about leadership, and I have led from a neighborhood president, an MPU chair, and I've also worked at City Hall. Atlanta mayoral candidate and president of the Atlanta City Council, Felicia Moore, heads into the November 2nd election strong. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's final poll listed her in the lead. She's right ahead of the former mayor of Atlanta, Kasim Reed. The first thing that I'm going to do is to open every single recreation center in the city of Atlanta. There are 33 of them. They run through the city like veins through a body. Now, technically, statisticians put Moore and Reed in a statistical tie, according to this poll, with their numbers being so close. However, a closer eye on the data actually suggests something starkly different and deeper when it comes to race. Conducted by the University of Georgia School of Public and International Affairs, the research for the AGC's poll breaks race down by three categories, black, other, and white. Now, Reed wins the black vote at 31.6%, while Moore only gets 12% of that vote. 
For the category Other, Moore is at 20% and Reed at 16.4%. And for the white vote, Moore dramatically wins, 33.9% to only 11.8%. So if the Atlanta black vote is in fact being suppressed by Georgia's recent new voting measures, according to this poll, the data suggests that Felicia Moore could indeed be Atlanta's next mayor. The biggest thing is, again, those northern Atlanta suburbs. That's where the bastion of her support is, but it's also the majority of her white support resides. Now, we caught up with Itoro Umantwin, digital managing editor and political reporter for the Atlanta Voice, whose publication has covered all 14 mayoral candidates in the months leading up to November. I would believe Kasim would run and win the race if there is larger turnout because he has had the support of Jeezy and athletes and T.I. and Killer Mike and all of the luminaries and all of the folks in the entertainment spaces here in Atlanta. But I feel like once, if, if the turnout is not that great, Felicia Moore will have a stronger chance of winning because her base and her areas of influence they turn out no matter what. And with November 2nd, just days away, forecasting results remain on polling data. But historically, polls can be seen as a snapshot in time and proven incorrect if out of context. But one piece of data is worth unpacking, and that is the 41.4% of undecided voters. I think historically in Atlanta politics, you have individuals, the majority of the city, um, they pay attention within the last, I would say, two weeks to a month before the election. June, July, August, September, October, uh, we're getting the kids back to school. We got college football, the Braves are in the World Series. We got the Falcons, Georgia's number one. You know, we've got parties. It's all these different things that, you know, that makes Atlanta, Atlanta, and Georgia, Georgia. So beneath the nuance, many wonder, who are these undecided voters? How many of them are black? And will Georgia's new voting laws help or hurt them from getting to the polls on November 2nd? And from the Atlanta mayoral race to many other elections all across the country, we're diving into what's at stake on November 2nd for black communities. Joining us is Democrat and former member of the Georgia House of Representatives, J. Craig Gordon, CEO of the New Georgia Project, Inse Ufat, former speaker of the Oklahoma House of Representatives and Republican, T.W. Shannon, and writer for the Foundation for Economic Education, Olivia Rondo. Thank you all so much for joining us. Now, Olivia, I want to start with you. Now, we know historically that the black electorate has showed up a bit less for special elections. Now, given that and recent claims of voter suppression, black voters who do indeed stay home for this election, do you think that will be by choice or due to voter suppression? I think it will have to be by choice. And it is no joke that voter suppression has certainly hindered the ability of black Americans to vote throughout history. Just right mm -hmm. now with this new Republican bill, I do have my criticisms of it but I do believe that it won't hinder people from voting who actually want to vote. I hear you. Uh, Jake Craig, I want to speak specifically about Atlanta and what's at stake for the black community there, considering this new controversial law that Olivia and I were discussing. Uh, how do you think that will affect the voter turnout and the conditions in general in the A? Well, uh, f first of all, thanks for having us. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think African-Americans 
as it relates to, you know, labor sources, whether we're talking about Atlanta, uh, San Antonio, Savannah, L.A. tend to, to work longer hours uh, and more mm. specifically uh, jobs that just don't align themselves with normal voting hours. And so I think, mm. you know, what this Republican legislature has done in Georgia, along with Republican legislatures across the country, is come up with a solution for a problem that frankly just doesn't exist. You know, I love this country. And, and, and I think it's, um, you know, it's not debatable that this country loves sports. Uh, can you imagine if the regulations uh, that have been put uh, in, in, in Georgia's voting system were applied to football? I mean, if you just take three to five of the egregious things put on voting and applied them to sports, it would be a mm -hmm. January 6th event on every park in America. I hear that. Insight, let me ask you this. Do you see uh, this Atlanta mayoral election as being a bit of a litmus test as to the ultimate impact, the discriminatory impact, many allege, uh, as it relates to these Georgia voting laws? Um, yes, and here's why. One, the Georgia's voting laws, particularly Senate Bill 202, is trash. Mm -hmm. uh, that there are easily 50 additional provisions that are designed to make it more difficult for citizens to vote to participate in our democracy. And so not only are there mayoral Atlanta, uh, elections in Atlanta, but there are over 1,600 municipal elections happening in Georgia mm. on November 2nd. And so there are gonna mm. be over 1,600 opportunities to see just exactly how um, these anti-voting provisions are gonna have an impact on Americans' ability to participate in our elections. So I want to bring T.W. into the conversation. Uh, T.W., can you elaborate a bit on the conservative claim that Georgia's new voting laws actually expand the rights and access for citizens, as alleged by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp? Thank you, Ebony. First of all, it's a pleasure to be with you. The Georgia voting law, I think, is really a great example of how the GOP is committed to actually expanding uh, voter rights. I think in the bill, the main important parts of it that I want to point out is that the bill actually expands the number of early voting days and hours, including mandating early voting on Saturday. It also allows the observation of tabulation, scanning, and duplication of ballots. This bill also allows the processing of ballots prior to election day. I mean, I think the election night reporting requirement ensures that all ballots must be counted by the end of election night. And I think that will ensure that votes have results uh, without having to wait days or even weeks uh, to get it tabulated. So again, I think this bill is actually an example of how the GOP mm. is committed to expanding voter rights, not limiting them. Okay. Uh, now, per that example, T.W., what's your re response to those who say uh, not allowing water and food, snacks, while in extremely long lines for, I think, the point uh, J. Craig made was interesting. You know, black uh, voters and people of color often do work jobs that have less nine to five hours, making showing up for the allotted voting time a little bit more difficult. How, how do those restrictions of food and water serve to access more voters? Yeah, I know that there's a lot of Democrat false outrage about the solicitation zone, uh, but actually what it includes is giving food and water by proper personnel. It just doesn't allow political activists to do that and to include their, their merchandise and their materials that might persuade voters in line. There's a reason that those laws have existed for a number of years is because election workers are still allowed to provide water and it allows for self-service water stations as well. So this, this farce that somehow the, the law is going to limit uh, access to people having food and water, is just, it's really uh, almost insulting to think that 
because you're African-American, you have to be fed, you know, bread and water in order to vote. It's just not true. What do you expect to see in terms of similarities and what's going to happen on November 2nd in states like Georgia and Texas and other places where these voting laws have been so egregious? Well, I think, unfortunately, for the Republicans, I, I think that a lot of the provisions they put in their new bill, I don't think it will help the, the state go red. I don't necessarily think that preventing people from handing out water or snacks in a line is going to enforce election integrity. However, I can say um, I don't live in Georgia. I'm not going to pretend like I know everything about the Georgia State Board of Elections. However, I did live in Pennsylvania, an important swing state during the 2020 election. And I can say mm -hmm. that the State Board of Elections there definitely needed some type of bill to strengthen election integrity. I received probably four to five uh, absentee ballots that were my own to my address of people who didn't live mm -hmm. there. So I think there are problems. and I think that the, the bill addressed some of those problems. But again, I don't think it's really going to secure the election. It seems like more of a virtue signal. Jay Craig, T.W., Insay, and Olivia, thank you so much for your time. Now, up ahead, moguls in the making. We're breaking down the dollars and cents of financial literacy and empowering our young people for the future. But first, unrest in Sudan. What's behind the recent military coup and what's at stake? What does the future look like for its people in the diaspora? We get into all of it and much more when Revolt Black News Weekly continues. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Ebony K. Williams. Now, the uprising in Sudan is the focus of our next conversation. The military has placed the leader of that country under arrest in an apparent coup. Prime Minister Abdallah Homdak is now back at home after he and several of his ministers were detained, according to local reports. So what's going to be next for the people and this country? Here to give us perspective, our own correspondent, Naima Abdullahi, Sudanese musician and activist Rami Dawood, and USA Today reporter Rasha Ali. Welcome you all to the show. Naima, I want to start with you. Let's begin with the tensions in the region. Can you give us a sense as to how long this has all been simmering? So the timeline depends on who you ask, because the ongoing revolution in Sudan did not stop whether it was televised or not, whether the world was watching it or not. But for time purposes, if we start with 2019 with the uprising, what it led to is longtime president who ruled for th almost three decades um, to be overthrown. Um, and his name was Omar al-Bashir. After that happened, there were demands for diplomacy and uh, transition into democracy. On one end of that, the general of the military side, Abdul Fattah al-Burhan, and on the other side, the prime minister, Abdullah Hamdak. With that, tension started to escalate. Um, the military started saying that the civilian leaders are actually leading to mismanagement. And then the civilian side, seeing the military leaders are doing a power grab. And then what did we see? The seizing of power, the detaining of the prime minister, the internet blackout, and so many different things that has now led the Sudanese community to ask, would we make any progress since 20, 2019? And that's where we are today. Rami, uh, what do you think is at the heart of this divide? Currently, there's a lot of, uh, because of the internet blackout, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. Um, one of those things is that there's, we used to all the time people saying that the streets are divided when in reality, there is no division. The, the people of Sudan are 100% united 
in that they want a 100% civilian government. There is no side that is supporting the uh, military coup. Mm, I understand. Now, Russia, what is the impact that this coup could have on the country and beyond, especially as it relates to the U.S.? Um, well, the U.S. was supposed to help out Sudan with $700 million um, to help the transition into democracy. So I guess you could say democracy is at stake. Trade hasn't been really ongoing with the United States. Um, the African Union suspended its membership, Sudan's membership. So honestly, a lot. A lot is at stake. To say the least. Uh, Naima, as the military violently cracks down and the protesters are taking to the streets, uh, as Rami told us, and as Rasha just talked about, the U.S. holding back that $700 million in economic aid, what does that kind of cumulative effect have on Sudan? So the most impacted people in this are going to be the everyday people, the civilians, people who need help every single day. When we look at it from, you know, the political crisis, the economic crisis is just as severe. Um, when we look at the value of the currency in Sudan, it's being impacted with shortage of food. There's shortage of resources for Sudanese people. And the country is already taking in refugees that are coming from the Tigray region in Ethiopia. So with that, they're already aiding the nearby country. And the big question is, where's the aid that's going to also aid Sudan in that process? And Remy, what has this coup done as far as the telecommunications and people being able to get information by phone, by uh, Internet, social media? Because I know you were talking about all the misinformation. How is the communication going on inside the country? Uh, it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult um, to communicate, even just, uh, for example, getting a hold of my parents. I've only been able to speak with them twice in the past uh, couple of days since this uh, started. So it's very difficult. Um, for the most part, there is no communication. Um, the networks might come on for a small window, and that's the window that we really have to where we get all the videos, all the footage from the ground, we communicate with our friends on the ground, all the activists, everyone out protesting. And uh, that's pretty much how it's been. Um, it's been not just an internet blackout, but even to make um, calls and texts, that's been cut off too. Yeah, let me ask you this, Rasha. Can you talk about what this coup is doing uh, to the people of Sudan from a global standpoint? I know you were talking about the global reputation of the country. Can you talk about how it's being impacted right now? It's a lot to say. I mean, I personally have been going back and forth to Sudan since 2005 every other year. And the first time that I've actually been able to breathe in Sudan and just my cousins, my family kind of have some sort of freedom was in December 2019, the last time that I went. And to see it all kind of go down in flames again and have people in the streets protesting and being killed again for the same thing that they fought for two years ago. It's this heart. I feel helpless. Like, what do I do? I can't communicate with my friends back home. I can't communicate with my family. Like all eyes are in Sudan right now. And I think that's what we can continue to do and continue amplifying voices on the ground, continue amplifying um, people who are reporting, people who are protesting. And I feel like that's, you know, just keep the pressure on and keep, like, don't divert your eyes from what's going on in Sudan. Well, that was going to be my final question. Uh, so thank you for really giving it to us pretty plainly, Rasha. What can we, as fellow members of the diaspora, do for our brothers and sisters in Sudan? And I hear you loudly. It's amplify. Keep the pressure on. Keep talking about what's going on in Sudan, just as we do for Haiti and other uh, places that need our support. Uh, Naima, Rami, Rasha, thank you all so much for the perspective about what's really going on in Sudan. 
you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now coming up, our entertainment roundup, which is going to include guest correspondent Kennedy Rue McCullough. She's going to go one-on-one -on -one with the cast of Insecure as they celebrate the launch of the fifth and final season of the show. That's up next. Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Ebony K. Williams. Now it's time to check out some of the entertainment headlines. And our very special correspondent, Kennedy Rumacullough, has all the details. Hey, Kennedy. Hey there, Ebony. Let's kick things off with Taraji P. Henson gets honest about domestic abuse. But first, I'm with the cast of Insecure for their South Central Swan Song celebration. And that kicks off this week's entertainment roundup. Being from South LA, why was it so important for you to film all five seasons of your show here? I mean, it's home, it's my neighborhood. That was the goal of this show to begin with, to, to show this particular part of LA that I love so much, to show black people living here, loving here, just being themselves here. And so there was no other place that this show could be set. That's why Issa Rae brought Hollywood to Inglewood to celebrate the last season of her HBO hit series, Insecure, which is off and running. If you knew the end was coming, how would you make the most of your time left? It's meant so much for the culture. What do you want the lasting legacy of Insecure to be? I want people to just take these characters and take this show into their hearts in the same way that I've done with some of my favorite shows. And it wasn't just Issa in Insecure Bliss. Her co-stars were just soaking it all up. How does it feel knowing that it's coming to an end? Emotional. We're going to go out with a B-A-N dang. Uh, but definitely, I think as I'm watching the episodes back with everybody that's here, a thug tear might, might just... Episodes that saw Yvonne Orji get experimental with her look on the show, including chopping her locks. I had about eight months of it cut short, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to step out and do some inches. We're not yes. quite at 20, and I'm going to go bomb bombshell with it. You know what I'm saying? Want to rumble with the B, huh? Issa said she loved it so much, she actually made Molly wear it yes. in the final. She did. Yes. And I was so, I was so proud of that moment too, because I mean like, I can't remember the last time that we saw like a corporate black lawyer with just like a buzz cut. Just, I, I was getting shape ups every two days. I was like, this is beautiful. I know. <laughs> my, my hair and makeup time was reduced significantly. It also was like ev the evolution of Molly, right? You know, so a lot of times they say when a woman cuts her hair, <laughs> you better watch out. Pow. Being a victim of domestic violence does a doozy on your mental health. Taraji P. Henson talking about domestic violence and holding nothing back. She, along with Tracy Braid, have a very candid conversation about abusive relationships. It just so happens that black women, of course, yeah. <laughs> we experience it at higher rates and often don't come out of the situation alive. I never thought in a million years I was gonna be that person. As October is also Domestic Violence Awareness Month, Taraji sits down with Angela Simmons. Both shared experiences as victims and survivors of domestic violence. And once the fist came, oh my gosh, um, that's when I knew I had to go. 
While Angela never publicly revealed the alleged abuser, Simmons didn't hold back about mental health as a result yeah, of the physical abuse. Yourself. Your energy is drained. You're constantly worrying about, are they going to snap on me? Is something going to happen today? Are you going to hit me today? Are you Catch more of the conversation on Taraji's Facebook Watch series, Peace of Mind with Taraji P. Henson, which is now available on the social media platform. Let's bring in Access Hollywood co-host Scott Evans, who's also hosting America's Big Deal airing Thursdays on USA. Also with Daily Variety senior writer Angelique Jackson and the Griot social media director Shauna Pinnock. All right, let's start with Wizkid. I mean, he's blowing up the charts with his Afrobeats hit Essence, which cracked the Billboard charts. How groundbreaking is this for an African artist who, like Wizkid, it might be hard to crack mainstream U.S. charts? His becoming more and more um, popular here in the States also then makes people want to go back and figure out where he came from. And when you realize that while Essence might be one of the first singles you've heard from him, you've also already been listening to his music, yep. right, with collaborations with Beyonce, with Drake. So now to hear um, radio play, uh, is um, a really cool thing. I also believe that the U.S. market has been a slower market to the world sound. Mm -hmm. Now we're seeing things like um, uh, BTS mm -hmm. break into the market with chart-topping songs. So to me, I feel like, yeah, and what's, what's another one? What's the follow-up? What else you no, Scott, that's a really good point because that idea that WizKid has been doing this for a decade. There are, you know, mm -hmm. so many artists, like you mentioned, Beyonce and Drake and Chris Brown, that have put him on that, you know, there's no surprise that he's finally getting this number one chart moment, but that's really the word. It is finally. It makes you want to know, like, well, where is he from? And let's figure this all out. In all honesty, let's get some tourism to Africa, okay? Let's. Let's give it right. some shine. <laughs> I want to get your guys' take on this while I have you here. In other big news, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees for 2021 finally get their moment to shine, just to name a few. Jay-Z, Tina Turner, LL Cool J, Kraftwerk. I want to ask you guys, how surprising, if at all, that this class of Hall of Fame inductees are so diverse? It's about time that we are seeing this diversification happening within the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I hope it's not just one of the things that it's cool for the moment. I hope it's not one of those things of, well, here you go, your bushel of Negroes and like leave us alone for the next 15 years. No, that's not how this mm -hmm. works. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, but I'm, I'm so incredibly proud of, again, and it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost frustrating to say like, oh, I'm so proud of all of these, these strides that these folks are making. It shouldn't take us this long to make these strides. But, mm. but we can look at it positively, right? Because I can be bitter and say, it took too long. Forget all that. We're here. It's, I think, really interesting when you like kind of look back at our representation within the Hall of Fame. You kind of look at the 80s. There were actually a lot of Black folks and a lot of, you know, really influential Black folks that kind of went into the Hall of Fame. You know, people like a, a James Brown or a Ray Charles, things like that. But then it did seem like there was kind of like this weird slowing period. But it is very exciting, the idea that Jay-Z, you know, gets in in his first year of eligibility, which... Mm -hmm. 24 years after the debut record it's somebody that you're like yeah 
he should be getting an award like this for all of the consistency with which he has mm-hmm. just right. destroyed and, and been like the top of music. He is the greatest rapper of all time in many of our estimation for a reason. Angelique, Shauna, and Scott, thanks so much for being here and helping to break down our entertainment roundup. All right, coming up, we're breaking down the social media saturation and how it's affecting our lives across generations. That's straight ahead. I can't even imagine what the suicide and and homicide and just the rates of depression, you know, an accidental death due to overdose are going to look like in the future. It's going to reach epidemic proportions. It's already, the the statistics are already alarming, and yet nobody's sounding any alarm bells. And that was British author Simon Sinek. While it sounded like he was talking about drug overdose, that's actually a clip from his very popular YouTube video, How Smartphone Addiction is Ruining Your Life. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm special correspondent Naima Abdullahi. From the apps that are on our phones to so many different social media platforms, the recent outage on social media from Facebook to Instagram left us all wondering, are we addicted and how addicted are we? It also left uh, experts wondering, do we need more breaks from social media? A recent article from The Atlantic equated social media to attention alcohol. And Andrew Bosworth, a longtime Facebook executive in 2019, released a memo comparing social media to nicotine. Bosworth said, quote, while Facebook may not be nicotine, I think it is probably like sugar. And sugar is delicious. And for most of us, there is a special place for it in our lives. But like all things, it benefits from moderation. So that quote leads us into a discussion about how the black community consumes social media. Is it like sugar where there is moderation or are we addicted like nicotine? This is a very timely and important conversation that we want to have on Revolt Black News Weekly. Joining me for this discussion this week, tech expert Stephanie Humphreys, social media influencer and entertainment reporter Daytime and CEO and founder of Humble Hustler Group Lorenzo Gordon and assistant professor from Boston College of School of Social Work, Dr. Robert Motley Jr. Welcome to the show, team. Thank you for joining us. And let's start this conversation conversation with the Gen Z perspective in 20. 20- hey everyone, it's Justin Biggs here from the Biggs versus Biggs podcast. If you're a fan of sports podcasts, then be sure to check out and subscribe to Biggs versus Biggs, a show that covers upcoming fights, fight reviews, and interviews with some of boxing's brightest stars. And it's brought to you exclusively by Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop, powered by creators. 20 Instagram published an internal study reporting that 32% of teen girls felt bad about their bodies and Instagram made them feel worse. Let's bring in our panelists daytime as part of the Gen Z generation. What do you think or how do you think social media attributes to confidence and how teens feel about themselves? Personally, I do think it's affected me. Um, I'm a very bright person and I think very highly of myself, not in like a cocky way or anything, but when I'm putting something out on social media, I love it a lot and I expect other people to love it. And sometimes when other people don't love it, it does kind of, you know, make me think, okay, something's not really clicking here, but in reality, it may not just be the right day to post that specific post. So I feel like it affects everyone. And when it does affect me, I kind of just take it upon myself to meditate a little bit and to go through and think logically the reason why it may not do as well as I thought it would. Thank you for sharing that perspective. And Dr. Motley, I want to bring you into this conversation. Wall Street, Wall Street Journal drew comparison between Facebook 
and the tobacco industry and how it targets teens. Is that a fair comparison to make? And tell me about, you know, what role parents play in that as well. Yes, thank you. Um, well, I don't think it's a either or. I think they both are culpable. Social media platforms like Facebook and others should definitely put things in place to restrict what's being shown on uh, these different platforms, particularly for those at least under 18. Also, the parents have to play an active role in ensuring that, you know, what content is being taught to their children, what uh, having conversations with the teacher and other faculty at the uh, schools to have an, to be engaged. So it takes a village, not just one person or the other person to really raise and, and help these individuals develop into full uh, healthy uh, individuals. Stephanie, can you also chime in on what Dr. Motley just described about the comparison of Facebook to the addiction, which is oftentimes compared to the tobacco industry? What's your perspective on that? The addiction is real, uh, but also the idea that they are peddling harmful things to young people is also very real. We've seen where uh, Facebook is using uh, teens' emotional well-being to sell them products. So when they know that they're feeling low in their self-esteem, they sell them diet pills. Or you know, if they know that their uh, relationship status is single, they serve them up dating ads. So the manipulation that happens on social platforms is very, very real. Uh, we should all be aware of it so that we can make determinations for ourselves how we want to continue to interact with these platforms. Mm -hmm. And with the research and data that is surfacing with time, Lorenzo, from a personal perspective, when you do see the trauma on your timeline, when you do see you know, that negative impact on your timeline, how does it impact you as a Black man in America? Um, it does impact me a lot in um, such an emotional way. But I'm one of those individuals where I try not to focus so much on the negative. I try to disconnect myself from it. Um, full transparency, like social media is my resume. You know, I started my company solely ground up on social media. So I use my brand story, my personal story to build my company and it's been working in my favor. So, you know, and then even, I know there's a lot of negativity going around about social media. However, I will say I feel it also increased black entrepreneurship. Like so many people were motivated to start something they always been thinking about. So true, it has its negative components, but there's always a positive way of looking at it. Absolutely. Lorenzo, Daytime, Stephanie, Dr. Motley, we appreciate your time and for contributing to this conversation on a multi-layer level when it comes to the addiction, when it comes to do we compare it to sugar or do we compare it to nicotine? How can we monitor that process and how can we really learn to detach when necessary because it does impact mental health? We appreciate all of you for joining us. Coming up on Revolt Black News Weekly after the break, financial literacy, economic mobility, and closing the wealth gap. It's moguls in the making when we return after this. One of the key things we really want to um, focus on is generational wealth. What we're trying to do is be more disruptive, do something unique. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. Now this week, we focus on Revolt's moguls in the making. It's a very rich and inspiring conversation that bridges the worlds of gaming and finance for our young minds of tomorrow. RBN correspondent Rodney Rakai breaks down the dollars and cents of it all. Peace, y'all. I'm Rodney Rakai, and today we're here to rap about some things that I'd wish I'd known at least 20 years ago, man. Financial literacy is so very important, but unfortunately, many of us are kept in the dark until it is far too late 
or at least we used to be. Enter Moguls in the Making, an entrepreneurship competition launched by Ally Financial, Thurgood Marshall College Fund, and Big Sean Sean Anderson Foundation, aiming to tackle the issue of economic mobility and help turn today's youth into tomorrow's competent and flourishing financial adult. I'd like to introduce some brilliant minds who are on the brink of helping our community close the wealth economic gap that we speak so often about. Kicking things off, we have our Moguls in the Making alumni. First up, a pair of FAMU Rattlers in Earl Perry and Keyshawn Smith. And representing Alabama A&M, we have Aaron Martin. And our last alumni, brother Damari Tyler, representing the blue and gold of North Carolina A&T State University. And then from Ally Financial, we also have representing A&T, sister Natalie Brown. I'm excited to have this conversation, something that I can hopefully uh, tell my son some things about because I'm trying to figure it out too, and y'all are the experts. So I want to kick it off with you, Natalie. Tell us what the Mogul in the Making program is and why the competition was launched. Well, we're excited to talk to you today. The Moguls in the Making program really came out of a concept uh, of trying to give back to the community, and particularly to students of color at historically black colleges and university, creating a pathway for economic mobility for them, as well as opportunities for internships and scholarship dollars, an opportunity for students to participate in a business pitch competition where they're pitching ideas around economic mobility uh, for a specific industry. And uh, we've got some rock star students that we've pulled from HBCUs to to further our path here at Ally. Man, that is so powerful. I wish something like this was around back when I was in school. I mean, man. So Damari, after your experience in the competition, you, along with the other Moguls in the Making alumni with us, became an intern at Ally Financial. So how was that experience transitioning from competing to working internally? Yeah, so my, my transition from competing to, to interning here at Ally Financial was, was great, honestly. My colleagues and I, we were tasked with coming up with an innovative way to help teach uh, financial education for middle school students. Uh, we knew that Ally Financial has financial education programs for elementary school kids and also high school kids and beyond, but there was a gap um, and there wasn't anything tailored towards middle schoolers. So my colleagues and I, as we were thinking about various solutions and what we wanted to come up with, the key component that we we wanted to centralize our solution around was technology, right? So whether that was an application, video game, uh, a website, whatever the case may be. But Keyshawn actually uh, is, is the brains behind Minecraft. He played it a ton, right? Um, he said, hey, if we, cre- if we can create our own world within Minecraft that is tailored towards uh, teaching middle school kids about financial education, then we, we can start go with this. And here we are now. So Keyshawn, you are obviously the tech juggernaut amongst everyone here. You're immersed in the world of Minecraft. So you created this game within Minecraft called Fentropolis. What is it? What does the name mean? And how did you come up with it, sir? So Fentropolis is a world within Minecraft where students can learn different financial concepts. If you break the word down, Fentropolis, uh, essentially so a city built on finances. Uh, So students can learn about credit, savings, investing, Cool, cool. So Earl, how did the team decide on game-based learning? So the team decided on game-based learning by essentially just talking to teachers, students, and principals. Um, We wanted to make sure that we made a game that was solely tailored towards students. So the best way to do that is to talk to people who are around students every day. Well said, well said. Damari, thinking back to presenting to Ally CEO, what did you think would come of the presentation? And did you think your game idea would actually be released to the public? Great question. So, you know, just getting an opportunity to present in front of the CEO of a, of 
company was was amazing to me. I, I honestly never been in a situation to where I get to present in front of a CEO. So I definitely wanted to maximize that opportunity. And I feel like we wanted to leave these executives with a presentation that they will honestly never forget, right? So, and I think we executed that plan. Um, and to your second point, I honestly did not know uh, that that our Contropolis game was going to get pushed forward. Uh, in all honesty, I mean, you know, you hear, you know, companies may say one thing, but it shows a lot about Ally for them to really take the initiative to not only say that they're going to push our solution forward, but actually make the steps to actually doing it. For sure, that has to feel good, man. Like, oh, we made that. That's us right there, fam. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for Keith sure. Song, as the resident expert of the world of Minecraft, what advice would you give teachers and parents, guardians on using Fentropolis with kids? The advice I would give to parents and teachers is just, you know, load the game up for the students and allow them to explore the, the more for themselves. Allow them to come up with their own questions and, you know, just help them when they need help. Very powerful. Aaron, you all set the bar incredibly high in year one. Like, I don't know who else is going to be able to conceptualize something this impactful. Describe what it has been like seeing your game launched nationwide. But seeing the game launched and seeing how people have been reacting to it, seeing uh, or just he hearing the comments come in and the reviews has been so surreal. I have a son, my son is a teenager and I'm trying to help him understand finance a lot better. He just got his own bank account. And so now, because he's completely immersed in video game culture. So now that I know something like this exists, I am actually very excited after we are done here to get him in front of the game and see what he's able to come up with, what questions he may ask, um, because it's important. It's very, very important. So Aaron, what's the one thing you want people to know about Moguls in the Making? There's so many sessions, there's so many people, like the amount of networking that you can be doing at the at this competition is, is endless. So make the most of it completely. Talk to everybody, even if you don't know who, who they are, get to know them, whether that be students or whether it's an ally, um, employee or field professional, you get to know everybody, make those connections and learn as much as you can. Ask all the questions. It's This is a free weekend where you can completely change the trajectory of your life. So Natalie, what can we expect to see from Moguls in the Making students in year three of the program? I think what you're going to see this year is a lot more excitement from our students. Um, we will be virtual or quasi-virtual, so we're trying to do a hybrid model this year. Uh, we've got um, just so many schools, 10 schools from across the HBCU footprint. And, and listen, hopefully these students will go back and recruit more talent like these four that we have here to come and work at Ally or to just come participate in the competition. At the end of the day, we are part of a, a, a fraternity uh, in the HBCU world. So we may, you know, posture and we may declare ourselves better than the other, but at the end of the day, it really is a community and a tribe. And if you go through the HBCU experience, it is always love. Um, so I, you know, respect to Alabama A&M and, and, and fam and everyone else, but Aggie Pride, you know what it is. Um, okay, so. <laughs> So as we close out this conversation, I just want to say thank you. So much information was spread uh, to our moguls. Thank you for this ingenuity, this idea of Fentropolis on Minecraft. Natalie, thank you for continuing to shine a light on this dope program for students from HBCUs. I wish it was around back in my days at AT, but it's all good. The future is obviously in really good hands. And if you out there want to learn more about the moguls in the making program, you can head to www.ally.com forward slash moguls for more info. I'm your guy, Rodney Rakai. Peace and blessings.
Rodney, thank you so much. There was some excellent information in there. Now, before we go, we want to acknowledge a history-making moment on the island of Barbados, which has elected Dame Sandra Mason as its first president. The news comes on the heels of the island's new path as a republic, which involves replacing Queen Elizabeth as the head of state. Dame Mason said in an interview this week, the time has come to fully leave our colonial past behind. Barbadians want a Barbadian head of state. As head of state, she'll join the island's female head of government, Mia Motley, the prime minister of Barbados, who is in her eighth term. Now, this puts two black women at the top of Barbados's leadership. Well done, ladies. We know that women make and shift the world, and they are one more jewel on the planet to do so. That's going to do it for us today at Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time. Everybody, I'm your host, Dr. Shonda and Chanel, and we're here from the Double Dose Podcast. We are one set of twins with two different perspectives. We both have faced many challenges in career, life, and relationships, and we are transparent about how we've relied on our faith to overcome them. If you want to hear us discuss current events, pop culture, and relationships, and everything else in between, tune in to the Double Dose Podcast. And it's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop, powered by creators. creators. <laughs>